Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Steve, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. It is nice to see you again. It's been, I don't think it's been that long. It's been like six months, seven months. I think it's been about six or seven months, Robbie. Lovely to see you too. You're looking well. And um, I don't know, one of these days I'm going to be the most popular guest on Out of the Blank Podcast. It must be getting close, surely. You're already top in my heart, I should say, top in my heart. I have to ask, because obviously I have an interest in ancient history, but I've been more focused into more relevant topics. But through all your podcast on Spartan history, I mean, do you feel like not that you have a better understanding or do you have a better overall image of ancient Sparta or just maybe some things that aren't depicted that maybe the public doesn't know about? I mean, we've talked about it in previous episodes, but I feel like you probably come up with your own morals and themes based on the type of research and um, episodes that your content focuses on. Yeah, man, that's a, as always, you, you ask fantastic questions. I love that about you, but, um, and I think you probably found this yourself when you were getting into podcasting, like, you know, you have an idea about where you're going to go and, you know, where the journey is going to take you. And it's only when you sort of start getting into the actual subject matter itself, um, as you probably found out with JFK, I've been a big fan of some of your episodes there that you sort of start understanding, you know, probably what your true purpose was in doing and that and, and an answer to your question yeah absolutely um so much so that i think before i started you know really drilling down into the especially the bronze age myths the, the homeric uh myths of of ancient greece and, and sparta more generally you start seeing that there's this there's this there's this thread that sort of weaves its way between all the stories and you can start picking out different generations of of history if you like you can start understanding that um you know something happened at this this particular time and then you can start following that through its sort of evolution within the the ancient history within the myths itself before you and before you know it you you, you really start to grasp elements of it and it all it all starts making it more sense all of a sudden whereas before it's just this you know broad section of ancient history myth legend hearsay uh, oral oral poetry and you it just it's just a lot of stuff but then once you start yeah trying to write narrative in behind it, you realize that there is a story there, you know, and once you start grasping that story, um, I think you can deliver a better product to to your listeners and it becomes more coherent in your mind. Yeah, so I can give you an, give you a, an example. So um, there's roughly six generations of, of mythic history. Um, the second last one is probably the most well-known, which is the the Iliad, the, the 10 year war around Troy. And the last, uh, generation are all the children of the people that were at Troy. Um, so like Orestes, who was a son of Agamemnon, um, Telemachus, who was a son of Odysseus. That's the last generation before a um, an event happened within ancient Greece that's not just testified through oral history, it's also testified in the archaeological record, whereby the sons of Heracles, the Heraclidae, returned to Greece after a period of banishment. Um, and basically wiped out Mycenaean culture, and that's borne out by the 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 burn uh, the burnt archaeological record that you see in places like Mycenae and ancient Sparta. Um, but that that generational sort of talk stretches back six generations uh, prior prior to that point of time, which is really that period of time that encompasses all of the Homeric legends within there. So bef before I really got into podcasting, it just was all you know little pish posh here and there and everywhere. But once you start drilling into it, you realize, oh my God, there's a coherent narrative in there. And that was probably one of the most surprising things that happened to me. Do you think there was a focus on eliminating the other person's footprint if one civilization was taken over, not leaving it alive for historical record purposes, but focusing on making sure that it was never discovered in the first place? I mean, it might be a weird question, but I mean, waging war, you don't see a whole lot of people 
gathering materials that aren't useful to their own society to build them up. You see a lot of destroying and a lot of getting rid of. That's why we're finding stuff now, like Viking sites in the UK that's not really talked about a whole lot, but the Vikings just disappeared. But then you're finding remnants of things, and it's just not wasn't really focused on. I mean, a lot of it was destroying, getting rid of, and making sure there was no remembrance of that other party. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a really clean line of demarcation between we'll call it Bronze Age Greece, which is the Mycenaean period, and I guess Iron Age Greece, which is when we sort of come into uh, a more uh, rather than orally tested, uh, a literally tested um, Greece. And there's a period of about three or four hundred years there. So you sort of look at if you were to put it in real world terms, you look at about about 1200 BCE would be the the fall of Troy and the collapse of Mycenaean culture. And there's a period of what they call the Dark Ages. Um, of Greek history, which takes about four to 500 years. And it's dark, not in the fact that, um, you know, there was no sunlight. It's dark they had intellectually. No yeah, they were just, they, they, the sons of Heracles, they burned all the candles and they lived in the night. No, they, um, they, there was no knowledge. Uh, there was no, there was no written record. So the Mycenaeans had their own script, um, which lo and behold became uh, Linear B, which was translated in the 1950s by a guy named Michael Ventress. So they had ability to communicate. And it wasn't until um, around Homer's time, which was in sort of seventh to eighth century, that the Phoenician alphabet was adapted into the Greek alphabet. Um, and then they started writing again. So it's about a period of four or 500 years there where there just is absolutely no written record whatsoever. Um, and to be fair, the written record, you know, starts with Homer um, and another epic poet called Hesiod. Um, but prior to that, the writing of the Mycenaeans, there was no epics in that. There was no stories. It was all, you know, how many chickens this guy had, how much tribute do we pay to these guys? You know, this envoy wants, you know, a couple of bags of gold or whatever. So that's sort of the demarcation between between that. So what happened to destroy the Mycenaean civilization wasn't so much that it was intentional to get rid of the writing, to get rid of the understanding of, of the culture that came before. It was just the people that came in and burnt these palaces to the ground had no writing of their own. And they, um, they destroyed basically the culture that came before and then settled over the lands. And of course, the surviving Mycenaean people, uh, you know, joined and merged with those cultures. And then eventually, after things settled down, after a period of a couple of hundred years, Greek culture started to, to burgeon once more. Um, and the, the ancient Greek sort of history that we know from um, 7th and 6th century onwards, the Greco-Persian Wars and the like, came after that period. Can you find anything through your research that has been attributed either from the Spartans or to the Spartans that might not necessarily be theirs or the opposite, like someone that might have taken something of the Spartans and we just attribute it to the longest time to them, but it was really something that came later or from someone else? I'm gonna. I'll answer that in a slightly sort of cryptic way. In that the what we call the Give Spartan Mirage. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a thing that's that historians. It was um, coined by a French uh, historian in the 19th century called uh, Le Sparti Mirage or something like that in French. Anyway, it was basically the idea of Sparta. And this is what you know. I have a lot of trouble with this with my with my listeners. Um, you know, people see the Spartan History podcast and they're like, "Yeah, can I swear on your podcast?" Don't remember. We've done it so many times already. Have we? Yeah, it's like, you know, fuck yeah, Sparta. You know, like they're like, you know, they want to see the 300 from Frank Miller's comics. And that's that's the Sparta that they that they think of. So in answer to your question, yeah, that that idea of Sparta is very pervasive. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just 
people that weren't Spartan that thought like that. It was also the image that the Spartans themselves promoted to give themselves a reputation um, throughout Greece. So I always like to think people ask me, I think you asked me the first time we ever spoke about the movie 300. I think I like that because I think that's how the ancient peoples would have thought about Sparta. And it's how the Spartans themselves would have liked themselves to be perceived by other Greeks. Can you imagine it? Like, this is this is this is who we are this is what we want you to think we are and people are going to think we're badasses so we can just stay in our little you know peninsula in the peloponnese down there and have our slaves our helots you know work our fields and people are going to leave us alone because they think we're badasses now to be fair they had some you know some pretty epic moments on the battlefield which you know fed into that that idea that mirage of the spartans but i think that's probably the main thing that you know that wasn't really spartan but it's something that we all associate with sparta and rightfully so and we could also i also suggest that the spartans themselves would have bought into that idea a great deal themselves why do you think they chose hercules as like call themselves the children of hercules or the sons of hercules why wouldn't they choose like maybe Ares, the god of war or something that has more of a demonic or not demonic but more of a if you're talking about being a war culture you would choose the god of war as your you know main essence i'm pretty sure hercules is the god of strength if i'm not mistaken but i guess it's the 12 labor challenges yeah yeah well hercules so so the the words hero or you know a hero as we as we would call it today so hercules was a was a demigod and and in those days so getting back to the generations i was talking about troy hercules comes from a generation uh before troy so a generation so he wasn't actually uh at the at the battle of troy but he had previously single-handedly conquered troy um you know 20 30 years before or whatever according to the hercules legend so I mean, for a, a warlike people um, like the Spartans were, there could probably nobody better to associate themselves with than Hercules. Now, the ancient Greeks tended to uh, associate as their founding um, sort of their, their founding heroes were always sort of half man, half god. You know, the Athenians had Theseus, um, the Thebans had uh, not Orestes. Um, they had. Um, Oh my god, I'm blanking on the guy's name now. Anyway, they all had their own different different heroes. So for the Spartans, um, Hercules came from the area nearby to where to where they were. He was um, he was Doric, which the Spartans were as well. And if you look back through the Spartan record of kings, the um, the first ten to twelve kings on either side of their um, kingly line, they had two kingly houses, so they had two kings, were direct. Uh, descendants of Heracles or, or sons of Heracles. So I think it was just a, you know, it was a good image for them. Heracles was a local hero, hero to that area. So he would have been well understood by the, by the general populace. And, uh, and it definitely, you know, even like Leonidas, for example, uh, the, the king that fought and died at Thermopylae was a Heracles. He was a descendant of one of the houses of Hercules and he was an Argead king and there was a Europonted um, throne as well. So two different thrones and both of those thrones could stretch their descent straight back to Heracles in the historical record, or so they say. Now, is there a significant war besides like the one that gets depicted in 300 where everyone basically dies? I feel like that's not, I mean, 300 is a good movie. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm pretty sure it was 298 that went to battle. Um, but if you <laughs> if you really like want to give a good depiction of like a good Spartan movie, I mean, what would you say the most significant war in your mind and your research from what you've done has been something that you've learned? I mean, obviously people just see the 300 movie and that's their education on Spartans, but from the historical record or for what you can tell, what was a significant war that might not get talked about? 
Um, 301, sorry to correct you, 301 Spartans, because they always talk about the 300, but then they're like, you know, what about the king? Um, so there was oh, 301 shit. Spartans. I thought um, it was 298. Two of them. No, well, well, you could probably say 298. 299 died, so two actually survived, um, and they have interesting histories after after Thermopylae. But um, probably the, I mean, their finest hour, or albeit their finest 15 minutes, probably occurred at a battle that took place a year later than Thermopylae. Um, so we were, this is, Thermopylae was sort of the opening land salvo to the second phase of the Greco-Persian Wars, which began in 490 uh, BCE with the Battle of Marathon. So the, the Persians got their asses handed to them by the Athenians there. So 10 years later, the Battle of Thermopylae. A year later after that, 479, the Battle of Plataea. So uh, post-Thermopylae, um, in September of 480, there was a battle called of Salamis, which was a, a naval battle. Now, the Athenians were the premier naval power at that at that time, but even even that being the case, there was still the Spartan uh, Navarch or naval commander that was commanding their fleet, but it was a massive Greek victory on water, which gave Xerxes enough reason to run back home to Persia and, and leave Greece because the navy was his lifeline. You know, that, that's how they got supplies from, from Turkey or, or from the Persian Empire into Greece. So without a navy to back them up, Xerxes hightailed and left, but Marvonius was his, um, was his kinsman and his most prominent general. And he also featured in, in the earlier phases of the war 10 years before too. But he stuck behind with an army of, say, around oh, 200,000, maybe maybe as high as 300,000. It's hard to say. Now, battles or wars were never won on the water. And the same can be said today. The, the ultimate battle has to occur on land. And it was at Plataea, which is um, in Yabea, uh, sorry, not Yabea, uh, in uh, southern just south of Thebes, so north of, north of Athens, a little place called Plataea where the, the Spartan-led Greek allied army of maybe around forty to 50,000 hoplites, fully armoured Greeks, uh, came to grips with the Persian army. And it took about 10 days for them to sort of, you know, figure out that they were going to fight. They were very scared. The Persian had um, far superior numbers of cavalry. But in those 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, the Spartans threw down and absolutely wiped the floor with the Persians. Um, if you've ever seen the the second 300 movie, I'm forgetting what its name is now. Uh, oh, sorry, at the end of 300. That's the one, sorry. Yeah, so that's that's more about the um, the Battle of Salamis. If you look at the end of 300, um, the guy that's narrating the entire movie, they're charging at a bunch of Persians right at the end of that movie. That's actually the Battle of Batia. That was the definitive land battle of the war. Uh, we don't really get a lot of casualties um, from Herodotus, who's the primary uh, historical source, he doesn't really tell us a great deal about how many how many Spartans died, how many Greeks died, how many Persians died. But it was an overwhelming victory for the Greeks, and it was a Spartan-led military force. They, you know, basically depopulated their entire region of, of soldiers. They had uh, ten thousand hoplites, which was um, so five thousand homoioi, which were fully blood Spartans. Spartans five thousand um, perioikoi, who were sort of the second. Uh, class citizen. And Herodotus tells us that for every Spartan homoioi, there was also seven halots, which were their slaves, their indentured yeah, the, servants. the ones with the agricultural uh, experience and yep. knowledge, right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. So, so you're looking at, you know, 45,000 potential fighting fighting men just from the city of Sparta. The Athenians had about 10,000 hoplites, Corinth had about 4,000. So there was a bit of a conglomerate polyglot force, but the Spartans were the, I guess, the the tip of the spear. The regent Pausanias, who had 
um, taken over the regency of the Argian throne in lieu of uh, Leonidas' death. His son was still too young to inherit the throne. Um, yeah, de utterly defeated the Persians. And that was really the end of the, the Greco-Persian wars on Greek soil. soil. It continued for about 30 years, um, largely led by the Athenians after that. But that was the last time the Persians ever went, well, oh, let's go and you know add Greece as one of our provinces. So much so that you know, 150 years later, Alexander the Great uh, stuck it to the Persians and, you know, conquered the entirety of the Persian Empire. So that was it for the Persians. So that's the greatest battle in in my mind that the Spartans ever took part in. What was the purpose of like the anger, I, I guess, towards the Persians or the Persians' anger towards everybody else? Were they just interested in conquering just like Sparta was or was it just something more on the line? Like when did they even come into the picture? Yeah, good question. Um, the, the Persian Empire was actually fairly nascent, um, even in you know, 490, 480 BCE. Um, prior to that, uh, so Darius was the king that um, sent the expedition to Marathon in 490. Um, he died in the mid-480s and Xerxes, who was, uh, well, he wasn't you know, the, the eldest son, but he was the eldest son born after Darius became uh, the Persian king. So he, through you know, stabbing a few of his older brothers and typical you know, royal politics, machinations. Politics. Yeah, that's how they roll. So, um, but so prior to, to Darius, there was Cambyses um, who added uh, Babylon and, uh, and yeah, sorry, Babylon to the uh, Persian Empire. And prior to that was Cyrus the Great. And it was only 552 BC that Cyrus the Great managed to flip the paradigm on the former Median Empire, Median Empire and made it a Persian Empire. So the Persians were pretty new, but they were expansionist. You know, Cyrus was a, was a conqueror. Cambyses was a conqueror. Darius was also a conqueror um, and Xerxes was simply looking to do exactly the same thing, was looking to, you know, live up to the ideas of his, of his father and his grandfather before them. So, um, you know, really Greece was, was fly, you know, on the, on the back of the, the mighty Persian empire, but the Greeks, they were the ones that really started it off. So the, the Greeks also lived in what we call Asia minor, which was the Western part of Turkey. Uh, they'd been conquered by, the Persians uh, early, late, very late in the sixth century, towards the back end of the five hundreds, and you know they had a had a respect for freedom, um, they had a respect for not not so much democracy, but more you know civil led society rather than bending the knee to a to a Persian potentate. Um, so they called for some help from mainland Greece. And the Athenians uh, sent over an expedition, and they caused the Persians a little bit of hassle. They they burnt um, Sardis, which was the uh, capital of the, I guess the Persian satrapy. Uh, in the western part of Turkey, and that really pissed the Persians off. So, you know, Darius is like, we're going to go get you guys. So they sent the um, expedition to Marathon, um, which went to Yubia, the island, and burnt one of the cities there that also participated. So they they, they burnt that city to the ground. They deported the male population uh, from the island all the way out to Iraq. So, you know, they, they showed those guys what for. Then they went to Athens to, to serve them up, and they were managed, uh, they, they were defeated by some, some pretty um, stunning... Athenian hoplite tactics there. So that was basically it. Darius had planned to come back, but he died. So then when Xerxes came to the throne in the late 480s, he's like, I've got to, you know, I've got to fulfill my dad's wishes here. I've got to, you know, punish these Greeks. So that's where it really all stemmed from. It was it was a bit of tit for tad, a little bit of payback. And 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 also the Spartans played a part in this in in the mid-490s under Cleomenes, who was a, a very powerful king of the Spartans, ruled from about 520 to, to 490 uh, BCE. He was attacking Athens, looking to, um, you know, 
basically get rid of it. They had some very early democratic leanings, not good for the Spartans. The Spartans hated democracy. Uh, they liked an oligarchy or an aristocracy. So they were like, we're going to get rid of these Athenians. You know, they're causing trouble. And the Athenians actually reached out to Persia and they offered, uh, the Athenians offered earth and water to Persia. So technically, Athens actually belonged to the Persian Empire. So when they came, when the Persians came to collect, the Athenians reneged on their on their promises as the Spartan issue had gone away from them. So that's that's really where it all kind of started. A lot of political machinations, you know, a little bit of you know ticking off the Persian Empire and and you know trying to save face. I mean, through looking at it all, do you base it on reputation? Do you base it on human instinct? All this compassion for war and drive to kind of conquer. I mean, everywhere you hear it's burning stuff down. So I'm wondering if this is just motive means religious ideologies anything that comes into the picture i mean what have you picked up theme wise that you can tell through a prevalence of all this time period yeah yeah it's uh, i mean theme is the is the right word to use there when you're referring to the the greco-persian wars um primarily because herodotus who was the the historian um you know he was he was very homeric in the way that he that he wrote his his history and for him it really was a, a thematic conflict um between i guess the barbarians um which was you know the greek term for anybody who didn't speak greek by the fact that they sounded like they were saying bar 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 so barbarians come from that and the the civilized and the cultured uh greek west now herodotus came from halicarnassus which was a uh, a city in southwestern turkey and actually, Artemisia is one of the characters in, in the movie. She was queen of, of Halicarnassus, so a Greek queen or a Carian queen, you know, fighting on the side of the Persians. But for, for Herodotus, it was very much a, a case of the, you know, the barbarian east against the, the civilized west. Of course, you know, Persia was very civilized and in many ways far superior culturally to the, to the Greeks. But the Greeks just had this belief in, in their culture. They had a shared uh, identity with their pantheon of gods and their and their shared language, uh, and for them it it really was the, you know I mean even even historians in this day and age they get lost in the hyperbole of it all. But the the Greco Persian Wars to to most historians um, prior to the you know the current woke era that we live in where we can't celebrate Western civilization, the Greco Persian Wars was and is the birth cry of Western civilization. If if Persia had have crushed the Greeks. Uh, during those conflicts, there's no, there's no telling where they would have stopped, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have stopped. There was nowhere further east, east to go, really, not easily. But there was west, and you know, in 490, Rome had been a republic for 16 years by that stage. There was no way in the world, and and they were a city. They weren't an empire. They had a city with maybe a couple of settlements around the city. There was no power in Italy to stop Persia, um, and nor was there that sort of homo homogeneity of of culture. That, that the Greeks had where they could come together and, and beat back the, the masses that Persia, you know, Persia was a truly uh, continental empire that they could throw at the Greeks. The Greeks could come together for that one beautiful period in history with a, with a navy and a, a land army that could stop them. So when they say the birth cry of Western civilization, I agree. I, th I think the world today would be a far different place uh, if the Persians had defeated the Greeks there. So thematically it was, you know, it was, it was civilization versus destiny. I mean, when it comes to if you look at like the Persians, how did they get so massive? Like, how were they able? I see. It seems like a lot of the Greeks, a lot of their tactics and strategies were a reason why they were up to last and really kind of beat back the Persians in a sense. Because it seems like from what you're explaining, there's like a massive amount of the Persian army compared to the forces of the Greeks. 
Yeah, look, by far and away. Um, you know, it's it's topography had a lot to do with it, especially in the land side of things. Greece is um, Greece's mainland and, and the islands, for that matter, are almost ninety percent mountains. Very, very few places of plains where, you know, if you look at the Persian uh, Empire, the, the homeland, and we're talking around, you know, Mesopotamia, um, eastern Turkey those sorts of areas, um, Saudi Arabia down to those parts, Egypt, lots of plains, lots of areas that lend themselves to, you know, massive infantry charges, you know, bulk cavalry units, chariots, those sorts of things. Whereas Greece was a series of, of mountains um, with, with tiny valleys between the mountains and mountain passes linking the valleys uh, between the mountains. So therefore, a serried rank of, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, hoplites, you know, who had trained and drilled together on how to be a, a, a veritable wall of shield and spear could, uh, you know, upset massive amounts of, of enemy soldiers, which, you know, we saw that at Thermopylae, you're looking at, you know, maybe 7,000 Greeks in total, led by, you know, 301 Spartans um, held off an army that was, uh, you know, several hundred thousand at that stage and held them off for, for three days. And it wasn't until that pass was turned that, that they were defeated. Who knows how long they, they could have lasted in the face of the adversity there. And the same can be said for the Battle of Plataea, which was the deciding battle we just we just spoke of. Very hilly battlefield, very hard to deploy, you know, massed ranks of infantry, very hard to um, get accurate cavalry charges because, you know, if you can imagine a battle with, with lots of hills, a real a real three-dimensional battlefield that the cavalry could charge off this way and thinking, oh, the, you know, the troops are over there. But once they got around the back of a hill, they couldn't see where they were going. Whereas this, you know, long lines of, of spears pointing at the enemies, once, once they came to grips with, with the Persians in close combat, and this happened at Marathon as well in, um, in 490, there was really nothing the Persians could do. It was, it was, it was the equivalent of you know, the first arrival of, of tanks on, on World War I battlefields against, say, you know, people on horses with spears still. You know, the Greeks had a, a technological advantage. Um, and in answer to your question how, how the Persians got, got large so fast, it was over those series of, of kings. You know, they had a, a pretty good power structure from the, the Medean Empire that came before the Medes. I mean, they were still largely called the Medes. Homer, Herodotus calls them Medes for the most part, as many times as he calls them Persians. Um, and through a series of conquests, you know, through empires that weren't really at the peak of their game, you know, when they took over the Egyptians, the Egyptians, you know, days had passed, the Babylonians days had passed. Most of the empires that they were taking over really couldn't um, come to grips with, with Persia. But the Greeks, you know, due to the topography, um, and the way that their land and that their army had been set up, you know, had a, an advantage against them there. And they also had a, a navy that could compete with, you know, some of the best navies of the day, the Egyptian and the, the Phoenician navies. They just, it's a funny story, mate, like to, just to go down the rabbit hole a little bit. I've always been amazed at how the Spartans who started developing around about 700, you know, this little land-based empire in the Peloponnese um, managed to come up with a, you know, the right ingredient to defeat the Persians 200 years later. Um, at the land battles of, of the Greco-Persian Wars. And the Athenians, through other means and other reasons, developed a navy that could, you know, defeat the Persian navy. And they came together almost exactly the right time to deliver that, you know, that one-two punch, the Spartans by land, the Athenians by, by sea, to defeat the Persians. It's, it's a truly miraculous occurrence. And, you know, as I was saying before, without those two things happening, who knows where the Persians would have stopped? You know, the Italians could be speaking a Persian dialect in this day and age for all I know. Who knows? I mean, it puts a new equivalent into like numbers aren't everything. I mean, if you look at the size of the Persian army compared to the tactics of the Greeks, I mean, it's a little bit, I mean, when did Sparta exactly fall? 
Like when was their final day where you don't really see a whole lot of Spartan? Either they assimilate or they were just wiped out. Hmm. I guess the, so. There was a massive civil war uh, that went from about four thirty one to four hundred two BCE between um, the Peloponnesian League, which was the Spartan led alliance, and um, the Delian League, which was a Athenian and primarily naval alliance, and throughout the Greek islands and that that. That battle lasted a war, you know, through fits and starts, lasted roughly thirty years. Now that that really bled the strength of of the the southern Greek people, so the Athenians, uh, the Spartans as well. Now the Spartans were ultimately victorious uh, in that battle, but what that what that war did was it it really and the change had been undergoing had been happening for a while in Sparta, but it really fundamentally changed. The Spartans, as we know them, you know the austerity, you know the the hate of of luxury, you know the dedication to to farm holding and and to you know being warriors. And all of a sudden, all this affluence, all this money, all this luxury was coming into Sparta, and they'd lost a lot of people in that war. They were a very tight knit oligarchy even before this time. There's a, a phrase that was coined by an ancient Greek historian called oliganthropia, which means um, the, good for you. Good for you getting those. Yeah, that was an easy down. one to say, actually. <laughs> it basically means the 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 dissolution, the, the dissolvement of of the the ruling class. So the Spartans were, you know, it wasn't you know, an equal society, even though their term for Spartans meant the homoioi meant similars or equals um, or peers, I guess. The you had to have, you know, as we've spoken before, we had to meet certain requirements to be one of those people. You had to have, you know, land and be able to supply the correct amount of food to the communal dining halls, the Sicitia that they had. Um, and if you fell out of favor with that, you could never come back. So by the time they're at the end of the Peloponnesian War in 402, there was only really roughly about a thousand homoioi left at that stage. So that's your, your full-blooded Spartans who wore the red cloaks, wore the long hair, shaved their mustaches, went through the agogi. There was none of that left anymore. Um, and if you if you take that back to the Greco-Persian Wars, there was about eight thousand of them then. So we're looking at a you know an eightfold decrease in in full-blooded spotlight Spart, Spartan hoplite warriors, which is what really gave them their strength. So thirty years later, there was a battle uh, at Lutra uh, against the Thebans, and the Thebans had you know had their butts kicked by the Spartans for you know, a number of years prior to that. And they'd learnt their lessons well under a couple of very dynamic leaders. Um, they'd even developed a band called the Sacred Band, which were, uh, ironically enough, 300 uh, or, 100, or 150 homosexual pairs of warriors, giving them 300 total. You know, the the the, the mythology around the number 300 certainly wasn't lost on the Thebans, or the irony lost on the Spartans in that. And they defeated the Spartans wholesale um, at the Battle of Lutra. A year after that, they actually the Theban alliance actually captured Sparta and released um, their helots, their slaves, emancipated them, created a city uh, for them called uh, Megalopolis or Great or Great City. Once that happened, the Spartans ceased to be a fighting force um, from there. Now, they still had some attitude, but they were no longer a power in Greek politics. You know, you found that the Spartans were joining alliances with other cities. So the, I guess the, the end point of the end point of my, my show, when I eventually get there, will be the Battle of Lutra, because that's the end of, of Spartan history as a, as a solo history. There's still history in Sparta, but it's not the Spartans the way it was before. Do you think the release of the Heliots um, into Sparta was like a kind of like a slight or spit on them as like, I mean, if you consider that those were slaves, I'm guessing that wasn't, they're 
making that whole place filled with slaves was kind of like an insult to the Spartans, considering that there was such a high power before. Oh, mate, 100%. 100%. I mean, slavery was nothing new to the Greeks. Uh, all, all of the Greeks had slaves. Um, but having Greek slaves was something that was uh, anathema to, to the Greek people, so much so that there was a, a massive earthquake in Sparta in the 460s. Um, and there was a Helot revolt. So there was really two provinces to the, the homeland of Sparta. There was Laconia, which Sparta was the, the capital of, and there was Messenia, which is the southwestern portion. Now, the Spartans conquered Messenia uh, in the seventh century, we'll say maybe the, the very late eighth century, they started their conquest over there. So there was actually two types of, of helots or helots. Um, there was Laconian helots who had been slaves for a very long time and Messenian helots who, who weren't Laconian, who weren't Spartan, but were nonetheless uh, enslaved. Now, when this earthquake happened, it really rocked the Spartan uh, city and it really you know upset uh, the way things were done. And the Spartans were in a lot of trouble. The Messenian helots immediately rose up in revolt and the Spartan needed some help. So they reached out to the Athenians because the Hellenic League, which was the um, alliance that was formed between the Greek cities uh, when the Persians were coming over, was still in, in effect um, current. So they called in the Athenians. The Athenians got there and they started helping the Spartans lay siege to the Messenian cap capital, Ithome, in Messenia. And they're like, what, what are we doing here? You know, like the, Spart the Athenians by that stage were democratic, um, not in the way that we understand the word, but they were democratic. And... You know, they think, why are we helping the Spartans enslave other Greeks? So it became a, a really big issue and, and caused a rupture between Athens and Sparta that was was never truly healed. So absolutely, when the when the Thebans, uh, after Lutra, went into Sparta and dissolved Spartan hegemony over the uh, over the Helots and helped create them a, a city, it was a big middle finger. To, to Sparta, you know, full well knowing that the only reason the Spartans could dedicate themselves to war was because they had, you know, for every one Spartan, 10 slaves working their fields, you know, provide, emancipating the Spartans effectively from field work so they could dedicate themselves to war. So the Thebans 100% knew what they were doing when they, when they did that. Now, how did they treat? Because this, I, I was going to ask you this before, I think we mentioned this a little bit off air, but how did they treat people that had, that could not be equipped for war? Spartans, like if you were elderly, what what did they do with you? Did they make you attend to the fields with the rest of the slave population that they had? I mean, if you were a person that was either disabled or had some type of handicap, did you have to focus on building and sustaining and managing the village? That's a good question. Um, well, Sparta was was primarily a gerontocracy. Um, you know, with gerontocracy gives us our word for geriatric, um, as in ruled gerontocracy ruled by by the elderly the the gerousia was one of the fundamental uh political bodies within sparta and the gerousia means council of elders so you needed to be 60 uh in order to join the gerousia um so it's actually a body of 32 so the, the two kings were in there Damn, as well they had that many old people back then holy crap i'm thinking people died at like 20. <laughs> well if you look at like even like uh Ramesses the great the one of the the famous Egyptian pharaohs out of the, um, you know, probably the the king that um, that the Jews are talking about in, in Exodus. I think he lived to be 96 killed by a toothache. So, yeah, like, while it wasn't common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, most, most of the, most people died from bad teeth back in those days. But, yeah, so the Spartans um, actually had a, a deep and abiding respect for, for the elderly. In fact, um, there's a bench 
like a park bench that they found uh, in Sparta with an inscription on it that says, if you're young, you should get up um, and let somebody else older than you sit down there. And there's a apothegm, um, which is the saying of, of Spartans that was recorded in a, a book called the uh, Apothegmata Laconia, the sayings of Spartans, basically. And there's a Spartan who makes a quip that he doesn't like sitting down to go to the toilet because if an old person came by, he'd have trouble standing up in time to let him sit down. So they had a deep respect uh, for the elderly. And in regards to infirmity, um, that's a that's a tricky one. You know, obviously we hear stories about when a when a baby is born that it's inspected by the Ephorate, which is a, a board of five uh, annually elected um, councilmen. I guess they were very powerful, especially in the fifth century. Um, and if it had any deformity or any um, you know signs of weakness, then they'd discard the baby um, by dropping it down a down a, a hole. Effectively, it was actually in, I forget the name in Greek now, but it, it basically means the place where you get dropped. Um, now they they found a place like this. Um, not far from Sparta that they think it is. And they found a number of skeletons, quite a large number of skeletons at the bottom of it, but no babies. So they think maybe it was used for, for prisoners of war or something like that. But that's the legend that, that babies were treated like that. But we look at a um, one of the more prominent kings uh, who fought during the Peloponnesian War I, I mentioned there, and he was indeed uh, still king of Sparta when the Spartans lost to Lucas to the Thebans, Agasileos. Uh, he had a deformity in his leg. I'm not quite sure what it was exactly, but we know that he had trouble dancing. He had trouble marching. Um, now, maybe he was left to be okay because he was one of the kings, but it's not exactly clear cut when it comes to disability within Sparta. And I, and I go back to the Spartan Mirage there, you know, did they really get rid of all their babies that, you know, showed signs of weakness or, you know, had sort of slight deformities when they had a very tight-knit population as it was, or was that just what they wanted people to think, that these guys are hardcore, you know, they don't put up any shit in Sparta, you show a sign of weakness, you get you get chucked down a hole. So it's it's really hard to say how it was for the for the normal people, but as far as the old age thing goes, the Spartans deeply respected their elders. It's, it's interesting, because if you really bring it to a point, I mean, it would lead into speculation, but I mean, if you think of an army that tries to consider itself effective, is effective, and everybody has to be to the best of their capability, then you would understand them getting rid of people with disabilities, nobody that could be fit to the cause where they would get rid of. But also, like, what would you, what would they consider qualifications as a disability? I mean, can you tell if a baby has some type of autism when they're inspected? I mean, we can barely do that. I mean, we could do it now with technology, but it's not relatively an 100% accurate thing. And then what happens if someone's in war and they lose a, a limb? Does that mean that they have to be discarded as well too or cast out? I mean, I had to think that there's definitely disabilities in ancient history. We just never really talked about it. Nobody ever bothered to write it down, but it brings into a really good question, which is, how much of the record is difficult to read because it does end up leading into speculation for things that you do not have answers for, that we do not have journals, we don't have letters, we don't have anything that's been written down. I would have to feel like there's a lot of historians out there that end up diving in and having minute details that are different. I mean, I'm doing that with the Kennedy stuff, and that's like <laughs> not even that long ago, 60 years ago, but there's a lot of difference in opinion. So I'm wondering with a record that is a lot of it's clouded or a lot of it's missing or a lot of it we just don't know, you end up having to try and piece things off the plausible information that you already do have, which makes it difficult if you're doing a historical podcast. It's just trying to give the accurate historic information while also trying to engage in your own intellectual conquest as well, too. 
Yeah, mate, absolutely. I mean, with the Spartans, what you say there, it, it, it's it's doubly true. Um, you know, the first 20 to 25 episodes of my show were based in a period where there was absolutely no written record, contemporary contemporary Spartan written record uh, of, of the period. Um, you know, we, we delve into things like ethnography, uh, that whereby, you know, we compare uh, other historical and contemporary cultures with what we believe the Spartans would like to try and understand, um, you know, the way they were with um, the training of their youths, the, the pederasty, you know, the, the, I guess the, the pedophilic relationship between men and boys and things like that. Um, but there is no written history by a Spartan at all. There's not, not, not a single one. Uh, Herodotus, as I mentioned, was Halicarnassan. He was, you know, from Southwestern Turkey. Uh, he was, you know, writing about the deeds of the Spartans, but, um, he likely never even went to Sparta. He might have met some Spartans for sure and spoken to them. Um, and, and look, this is by and large the problem with most Greek history in general. It's Athenocentric, um, whereby it's written by people like uh, Plato, Aristotle, um, Pericles, the, these 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 type of type, uh, you know Demosthenes, these types of people, and all the all the great playwrights. They all came out of Athens. So we have absolutely nothing. There was a, a prominent Athenian who was a student of Socrates uh, named Xenophon. He was a, uh, an Athenian elite. He was the um, author of the Anabasis, the March of Country. So it's the March of the 10,000, um, where, whereby 10,000 Greek mercenaries tried to go and help um, a Persian prince overthrow the king. And um, when he got back to Athens, he was very disillusioned by the killing of or the forced suicide of Socrates. So he actually left Athens and he lived in Sparta uh, for a period of time from about 400 to around about 380, uh, his children were made honorary citizens of, of Sparta. They went through the agogi, that's the um, the ritualized education. And he writes about the Spartan uh, political system in you know the, the early fourth century. Um, but that's a hundred years after Thermopylae. You know, um, there was a famous uh, historical speech that was given that that the Spartans don't even remember their grandfathers. Like they had, they had. You know, they could read and write for the purpose of keeping records, but they weren't renowned for, for reading and writing, you know, so there was really nothing, no record that they could they could get out there. So, mate, with Sparta, it's it's been very, very tough. It's been great to get into the more historical uh, period because I can actually read, you know, articles, um, text, documents, modern historical thought to be able to start you know, piecing together a narrative. But before that, it's just, it's just all guesswork. The Spartans, um, for how popular and how prominent they are, there is absolutely nothing written down you know minus some some lines of epic poetry written by uh Tertius, who was a, a a poet who lived in the seventh century and, and you know writes about you know battles mythical battles in, in poetry it doesn't really give you a great deal there's really nothing to go off at all for what we for what we feel the spartans did in history they barely leave a blip on their historical record what's interesting to me is that you've soaked up all this information through doing the podcast but i'm wondering you've probably noticed that there's areas with spartan history or just greek history in general that end up either intersecting or something comes across but it's something that maybe you have a difference of opinion on you know what the record is or you know what this is but you know it's also a controversial issue it's like the jfk thing for me just don't even say who who pulled the trigger just don't even just the controversial don't even enter that territory because you get a host of answers so i'm wondering what's your difference in opinion maybe than a listener or someone that you know 
maybe you've talked to on your show. I saw you did a couple interviews, but I'm just curious if you have a different opinion from maybe a source that you were looking at where you're like, well, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that one. I think it's probably more likely this. It doesn't have to be 100% true. I'm just curious to what your perspective is on it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's all just a series of arguments, you know, educated educated arguments um, as far as modern historical perception goes of Sparta. And, and look, you could basically... Or broadly, I should say, put those into two different camps. There was the camp of people who believe in Spartan exceptionalism. Um, but yeah, there was the Spartan mirage and, um, you know, there was a lot of propaganda that was going on. And, you know, people were looking, when people were writing about it in, say, the first or second century um, CE, looking back with rose-coloured glasses at the heroic age of the Spartans. And you know, there's a bit of fluff around there. But, but by and large, um, there's a camp that believes that the Spartans truly were exceptional, that they were, um, you know, warriors almost out of mythology and they almost single-handedly saved Greece from destruction by the Persians. Then there's the other camp that, um, that doesn't really believe in Spartan exceptionalism at all. In fact, they just consider them, you know, your everyday Greeks. Um, they, they lean a little bit more left, you know, as far as they, they consider them to be uh, slaveholders, um, you know, which, which they, they, they were without getting into too much nuance, too much nuance. Um, and then there really wasn't anything that, that special about the Spartans, save that they were you know, great propagandists and they, they pushed forward an image of themselves as being these sorts of legendary warriors. So I've disagreed with, with people on that side fairly regularly. Um, my, my two favourite uh, Spartan historians, both have been on the show, uh, Paul Cartledge, and uh, who's probably the, in my, I'm a little bit biased, but he's probably the greatest living legend when it comes to Spartan historical research. Uh, he's good friends with another professor called Steve Hodkinson, and they couldn't be more polar, polar, polarly opposed in their um, their viewpoints on Sparta. Somehow they still managed to be friends. I'm sure they've had some some fantastic discussions. But look, I I, I disagree with with uh, Professor Hodkinson's theory that, that the Spartans were just another you know, fairly average Greek polis that, that weren't that exceptional. I, I think that the Spartans were extremely exceptional you know, in good ways and bad ways, that they were different from really any other culture that had, you know, come out of ancient Greece. Um, they, you know, they had systems of government, systems of operation, cultural differences that that were really individual um, to, to their setting. Um, where they were in the Peloponnese, they're quite isolated, hard to get to. So they sort of developed a slightly different way to, you know, how you how you'd see Athenians or Corinthians or or Thebans. So, yeah, that's that's really the the fundamental basis of any argument that I've had. But uh, that can get taken too far as well. You know, the as I mentioned before, the guys that are out there going fuck yeah, Sparta, like they don't really like my show um, because I'm not. I try to tell it straight down the middle. Um, obviously, I've got my biases, but um, I try to tell the Spartan story as best as I can. I put in my own two cents, but I, I generally try to keep it pretty straight down the middle. So I end up just pissing off people on both sides, people who don't think the Spartans were exceptional and people who think that they were literal gods. Um, I sort of fall in the middle a little bit, I guess. You find that people's, like if you're looking at an academics journal or academics perspective or a professor's perspective, that they have their, you can notice their political bias being drawn into it. I noticed that with the Kennedy stuff, like nobody talks about the scandals, especially if they're most of the Kennedy people are left wing. Um, they won't talk about the scandals and won't acknowledge it, but you end up missing a whole chunk of history. So if you play it down the middle, which is what I try and do too with the JFK stuff, you don't get, I mean, you piss, you piss off everybody, but I'm curious if you're reading somebody's source and you start noticing, okay, this person has this political, whether it's wokeism that has entered the ancient 
argument or historical record? And then also, what are your thoughts on the dangers of modern politics being intertwined with the teachings of ancient history instead of just looking at it from what we can read from a textbook and factually prove this way? people's own ideas and beliefs being inserted into the historical record, changing the outcome of what is taught. It's a massive problem, mate. It's a, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, I, I don't think that history is there for us to twist to our own political narrative. Um, you know, history should be obviously there's, there's massive lacuna or gaps in, in what we understand from the historical record. And that, that could be, you know, if we're talking about the Romans or the Sumerians or the, or the Greeks, um, but we should never try and twist what we do know to fit our current narrative. Like I can tell you for a fact that the Spartans or you know the Romans or the Babylonians weren't imagining a time in three thousand years where you know we'd be sitting here as you know so-called enlightened individuals, and and they would be worried about how we would be perceiving them. They're doing what you and I are doing now. They're just acting out their lives as they as best they can. And I think that we we do ourselves a disservice when we try and um, manipulate the history to try and support our own political biases, our own cultural biases, um, and, and our own narrative. And I think, you know, you've probably noticed in America, and the same can be said for most of the Western world, how academia is, is extremely skewed uh, towards the left, um, you know, ten, tenured professors, um, they yeah, won't admit it, though. Cult. They won't admit it. I've had I've had them on and I've debated them about it. I said, look, it's the same thing with our media right now. Our media is a lot left. I'm look, I'm apolitical. I don't care about politics, but I've noticed it where you see a complete overriding theme of one side over the other, and especially in academia, nobody talks about the Kennedy assassination in academia. Or not even the Kennedy assassination. Nobody really focuses on Kennedy that much because of the fact that it always leads to the question of the assassination. And if you talk about conspiracy, people consume that you're right wing. And it's like that doesn't – it's just looking at the record and showing that our government has done a lot of bad shit. And to say that they just paused for whatever long the Kennedy thing happened, then no, that's just stupid. But nobody wants to – they skip right into Johnson. I mean one of the biggest controversial issues – Vietnam War, was Kennedy going to pull out or not? A lot of leftist people think he'd like to. The right conservative people say that there's no evidence to support that. You're basing it off of claims that he experienced change while in office, which I do believe he experienced change. But also I don't know because it's the context of war. What's the country telling you you need to do compared to what your own belief is going to be compared to that? And then you I mean, get into, like I said, the assassination. Is that why he was killed? Again, sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to go yeah, on. No, no, but you, I mean – you're right. Um, and I think, you know, the, the left believes in, you know, more government, more regulation, uh, more, more control um, that, you know, where there's a, where there's a need, there's a right, I guess. And um, if you're going to, you know, get on the road of, you know, say the JFK conspiracy, then that that's a proof that, that more government is bad. And it tends to be, you know, right-leaning people that would probably say, well, that's government doing what government always does, you know, acting like a tyrant. Um, so that you'll get to divide that. I can, I can give you an example of, it's not, um, it's historical, uh, it's not related to Sparta um, so much, but there was a, a big push to try and uh, homosexualize Achilles and, and Patroclus in, in the Iliad. Um, and, you know, it got tied up with that whole, you know, homophobia that, you know, if you didn't, accept gay rights then or you know or, or actively promote it with you know rainbow flags and things like that then then you were against it you know it wasn't enough to accept it you know you had to 
had to promote it. And there was a massive push in academia, and it's, and it's still there, to be fair, to um, say that Achilles and, and Patroclus were, were homosexual. Now, to be fair, in, um, in classical Greece in the 5th century, the 4th century, you know, 700 years after the, the Iliad, that was a fairly well-accepted um, thought that the, the Athenians certainly uh, made a lot of references to Achilles being uh, in a homosexual relationship with, with Patroclus, and fair enough. But the actual source material, the... Is that because he went to war as well, too, after one of them died? The other one, they like to think that that's why? Oh, he, Achilles like completely flipped his fucking lid after Patroclus died, and you know, and he, you know, he tore shreds of himself, and you know, slaughtered a bunch of Trojan POWs, and you know, built a pie to the sky, and you know, he he completely lost it. They, but that was because he dressed up like the one guy and tried to impersonate him in battle. Is that yeah? We talked about this that's before, right. I think. Yeah. yeah, we would have. Yeah, we would have talked about it before. Yeah. So there was, you know, I got into a big argument with somebody saying, you know, I just simply said, you know, show me the source. You know, Homer is our source for for the Iliad um, and for Achilles. There's there's really, you know, no other primary source, source to him. I said, just just show me where it says they're in a homosexual relationship. And and it wasn't, well, although homosexuality was very accepted in, in classical Greece um, and, you know, it was state-sponsored like it was in, in Sparta. Um, that's that's not that's not my argument. I just said, show me where it says in the Iliad that, that they, you know, were romantically involved at, at all. And... The only answer I got was, "Oh, you're a homophobe. You know, you don't, you know, you don't care about the the plight of gay individuals. It's, you know, it's, it's a typical tactic of people that go down that way rather than meet you halfway and have a, you know, intellectual discussion about something. They just start calling in names because they they don't really have any, you know, ace up their sleeve, so to speak. And that 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 happened, you know, um, very recently in academia. Achilles is gay. If you don't believe it, you're a homophobe. Not you can't provide evidence of it. It's just you're just a homophobe." I wonder, I mean, with Homer being the kind of main source for everything, isn't that difficult? Because you're supposed to have two sources to really get a confirmation of anything. I mean, that's how news is supposed to handle. But if you got one guy writing your thing, I mean, I feel like he left some details out probably on a lot of things. Yeah, well, CNN or NBC should probably yeah, adhere to that two-source rule. But, mate, when it comes to ancient Greece and, and really the ancient world, you take what you can get. You know, if you've got one source like Homer, and he is, you know, canonical. He's he's biblical in a sense. You know, there's only one Bible. There's only one Homer. You know, so you know, if he says something um, that's later trumped by an author three or four hundred years later, most people will default and say, well, you know, Homer's closest to the source. We'll we'll go with what he says. So. Um, yeah, there's there's no chance of getting a second source. Oh, you know, Homer, Homer said the battle lasted for ten years at Troy. Well, we're fucking stuck with that. Like, there's there's nobody else that can can say any differently, really. Now, I think your take on everything is pretty respectable because I think you're open to new ideas and new information. But at the same time, I don't think you like how I am. It's not the whole piece. Like, just because there was people with disabilities back in ancient history and there was gay relationships back in ancient history doesn't mean it's the whole thing it's not the whole entire theme of not every single person was that it just means that there was a little bit of it and it wasn't acknowledged before but people try and want to make it the whole thing which eventually it just kind of skews a lot of the important information which is the historical significance of what the thing is you're teaching yeah well and to get back what you were saying about how people try and you know skew history to to fit their narrative that that achilles and patroclus saga that's what they're trying to do there they're trying to support their their beliefs and their ideals and their their promotion of um of gay rights gay pride um which is which is great but there's there's other ways to do it you don't need to skew 
a book that was written 2,800 years ago to make you, you know, feel better in your, in your choice and your belief structure. Um, it, it doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever, but to occlude and obfuscate history a, as it is. And look, it's, it's patchy enough, um, in and of itself, you know, we don't, we don't really want to go messing around with it. Hey, maybe, a another copy of the Iliad, you know, comes to light, uh, out of some scroll that was burnt by the Vesuvius volcano, um, in Pompeii. And maybe it tells us a totally different story that great. That'd be, that, that would be fantastic. There are actually, um, there is actually some interesting work being done on some scrolls, uh, at the moment with, with a very, um, novel and new technology, uh, that can somehow with x-rays read these carbonized scrolls. Um, so, you know, who knows what comes out of that and anybody who loves history will be, you know, absolutely, you know, frothing themselves wondering you know, what, what, what could be next, but until such time, like we've got to read history in, in the light that we, that we have it, um, you know, patchy, wholly inconsistent, incomplete, but it, it is, it is what it is. We, we shouldn't be messing with that. Have you come across anything in your research that you just didn't have an answer for? Or there was just one thing, maybe a question you still have based on like a past episode that you never got a full conclusion on because there is no data for it. Oh, Robbie, hundreds, hundreds of hundreds of things. Um, you know, I think everybody, everybody that's got a passion for history, um, you know, there's a lot of references. Um, I'll take Plutarch's a, a really good example. He wrote a, a series of, of parallel lives, um, comparing ancient Greeks with with ancient Romans. See, Plutarch was a was a Greek or a Romanized Greek, and uh, he lived lived within the Greek or you know the Roman province that was Achaea, Greece. Uh, he was trying to uh, they call him a moralizing biographer. He was trying to um, write a book as a way of saying, okay, guys, look, your time has come and gone. The Romans are here now, but you really aren't that so different. So he compared the lives of you know uh, relatively contemporary Romans with with historical. Uh, Greeks, he did one of Leonidas. Unfortunately, that life has, has been lost. Now he, um, because he was such a good biographer, references hundreds of of other authors, and and the vast majority of them are lost. Um, I would I would like to get my hands on on some of those um, ancient texts that, that that have been lost, the ones that that tantalise you, that say, oh, I read this, you know, lovely passage about you know Sparta in the five fifties in this book, and I and I took this from it, but you don't hear anything else. I those are the things that 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 eat away at me when I'm you know up at night, can't sleep, thinking, oh god, I'd love a copy of uh, Theophrastus or something like that. Th th those are the ones. The the questions that that I had when I came into the podcast that I that I didn't have an answer for, um, I found answers for, and moreover, I've developed a network of um, people as as you would have with your own exposure to the JFK experts that you know if you've got a question you can just reach out to these guys you know and they'll give you the the best educated answer that you can get so there's nothing really that i'm that i'm missing um you know my own biases would lead me to believe certain things about the spartans that others others wouldn't but god almighty i would love to get my hands on some of those ancient texts that are that are, that are missing now you know or a, a complete catalog of all the books that were within the, within the library of alexandria and start peeling through those and most people who are truly passionate about history would, would feel exactly the same way do your sources from the start of your show compared to where you're at now, or do they remain the same? Do you still use the same sources, or did you find other areas that you would feel are more accurate in depictions? I think as I've gotten more competent with the the whole genre, I mean, history has been a lifelong passion of mine from a, you know my earliest age. I've I've always been you know, into fantasy, into you know things that happened a very very long time ago. I've I've loved 
history from from my from the I can tell you ever Greek god, but I don't know much about Spartans. <laughs> yeah, I just I'll just look. I did I did the Spartans because you know the Romans were taken. I, I, and and you know I I love Sparta. I, I lived I lived in Sparta. Um, you know for a period of time. So I've always had a passion there. And nobody had really done done the. What Spartan do you mean the Romans are taken? Oh, that, 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 there's been some fantastic podcasts. Um, Mike Duncan is one that, that if you've never listened to his podcast on Rome, like once you listen to Duncan, you're like, well, fuck, there's no point in doing that again. Like look, other people are doing it. JFK podcast and Rob Reiner on his fourth episode said he named all the names involved. And in I'm like, good job, Rob Reiner. You fucking solved it. Oh, piss off Rob Reiner. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes that guy anyway. He's a, he's a cuck. Um, but as I've gotten more comfortable with the, I guess the source itself and with the topic, um, I've definitely started broadening uh, my, my intake of history, getting into more of the, uh, I guess the epic poetry, uh, more of the, the odes, just trying to build a better picture of, of what life would have been like for the ancient Greeks by then, back then, rather than just solely focusing on the, the corpus of works that, that sort of concerns itself with the Spartan people. I've definitely broadened my horizons and I'm, I'm far more well-read, even, to, even to, the, to the extent of reading um, Roman authors who, who would write about Greek history, like, um, uh, like Livy, for example, and pe people like that who write in that sort of that epic historical genre and, and reference, you know, episodes like Troy. Um, I, I've expanded my, my horizons in, in that regard. So I'm not sort of solely just stuck on this, you know, the three or four good sources we have about Sparta. I'm, I'm a little bit more well-rounded in my, my, my Greek history than I was, you know, five, six years ago when I started the show. What happens when you reach the final conclusion to your podcast? Do you have any ideas of what you're going to end up doing next? Are you going to stay around the same Spartan thing? You could start, I mean, you have so much information soaked up into your head on that already. I would consider you a historian, at least in my eyes. I think a lot of people probably would because you have soaked up all the information, but what a blog, anything, you, you are you going to switch top? You want to hop in the JFK with me? I need your help. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, always happy to be on out of the blank. Um, I have, I have considered it and, um, and I thought I might do a, I haven't, I haven't come up with a working title for it yet, but I think the, um, like the Polis podcast or something like that along those lines where I do a, a, a deep dive over four or five episodes into different Greek policies. So like, you know, do, 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 do Corinth, do Thebes, um, Athens is, is pretty well done, but do, do segments of Athens, get into cities that, that people really don't, know much about or really haven't heard a lot about um and 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 try to flesh those out the way i've done the spartans because you know you could you could really do a you know a decent job on spartan history in four or five episodes you could do it argus. all as i've just argus argus yeah for sure absolutely argus would have to be one i mean they were you know massive antagonists of the spartans um yeah i mean perseus was was argive um hercules was born in argos yeah, be, yeah I, I would yeah argos would definitely that's i think that's probably where i'll go i like the idea of of you know deep diving into something anybody who's listened to my show you've had the pleasure or the ostensible pleasure of listening to me rattle on about the spartans for god knows how many hours now like you know i don't like to leave stones unturned i really like getting into the details so i'd like to do that with some of the the topics that haven't been covered i'm not really interested in doing something that's been been done before i just i don't know i, I have a feeling i can't do a better job than what's already out there but i'd like to be able to touch things that haven't really been um, investigated fully that's probably where i'll go next have you found a nugget in that little you know shit pile no, i mean shit pile I just mean history as a shit pile but have you found a little nugget in there that was something like that was just interesting information but it could not really benefit talking about it or it's just something you stumbled across for instance i'll give you an example 
So I like this example and it's very good. Um, so if you know a lot about Nixon, um, I, when you dive into the JFK subject, you end up do leading into Watergate just because that's when you see a lot of the most corruption from our government really get exposed. The church committee where you can look it up, anybody can look it up online. They're in a court proceeding. The director of the CIA slides across the table to Frank Church who's leading this committee, and it's a heart attack gun. It's a gun the guy holds up. It has a giant scope on the top of it. You can watch the video. He goes, what does this do? The guy said within 24 hours – a dart will come like a dart can come out of the gun within 24 hours. Someone will go into cardiac arrest. One of the ways they were attempting to get rid of foreign leaders is with a heart attack gun. That sounds conspiracy. And so you watch the video, you see the documentation on crazy, but it's this thing with Nixon that I found out. Cause a lot of people, if you believe the mob killed Kennedy, there is a loan that was loaned out by Carlos Marcello, who was the Chicago mob boss. And he loaned $25,000 to Kennedy's campaign. You're like, why is a mob guy funding JFK and his campaign against Richard Nixon? Well, there's three different theories. One is that is because Joe Kennedy was a bootlegger, sold a lot of moonshine and things of that sort and worked with the mob for a brief amount of time. The other one is the transcript between Carlos Marcello and Johnny Roselli, handsome Johnny, who ended up being chopped up in a barrel. Um, when he on his third time before he testified before the committee about the JFK assassination, which is interesting in itself. Uh, but he so they had a phone wiretap conversation that the FBI has, and you can look up this transcript for it. They were talking about Frank Sinatra because Carlos Marcello had used Frank Sinatra, given him twenty five thousand dollars to go for Kennedy's campaign. And this is where the Rat Pack comes in. Frank Sinatra made a song for Kennedy, but it was never attributed to him. But Frank Sinatra has a unique voice. You can't mistake anybody else. That's definitely 100 percent Frank Sinatra singing. Go for Jack. Jack's the way to go. And that's talking about Jack Kennedy. They were it was for his election. It played at the tracks and everything like that. And there's photos of Frank Sinatra and John F. Kennedy. But this twenty five thousand dollars has been like it was given. But Frank Sinatra, did he do it? Did was it because of Joe Kennedy's old relationship with the mob? Was it something of that sort? One thing I found out was that election between Nixon. Jimmy Hoffa had taken money out of the Teamsters Union. Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa had given money to Richard Nixon in the total of $40,000. And they think that since $25,000 went to Kennedy from Carlos Marcello, Jimmy Hoffa gave money to Nixon. Jimmy Hoffa was like, what the fuck? You just can't canceled out my 40000 Now I only, what, 15000 That's all like went to Nixon. It was supposed to be 40000 They didn't communicate on that front. But it leads into this weird area where a billionaire, you might know the name of him, Howard Hughes. You ever heard of that? Mm, of course. Yeah, the absolutely. Actor. Well, when he was buying up, he built a lot of Las Vegas. He bought it. From, a mob was really built up Las Vegas, but he bought out all the old mobsters like Mickey Cohen, all these guys. Um, he phased them out and took over their casinos. Well- Howard Hughes donated to Nixon's campaign through his brother. And I didn't know this. And this is the tidbit I was talking about where you start diving and you start seeing the connections. Mm. Nixon, I think his name's Donald Nixon. He started a burger chain called the Nixon Burger. And dude, this is the most interesting thing. So he gave money to Nixon through Nixon's brother. So Nixon, you can look up these photos. There's photos of him standing at the Nixon restaurant with all these other you know, right wing people. And uh, he's standing in front of a banner and the banner is in a language you can't read. It's like Vietnamese or it's something else. And they thought it was hilarious because they're making fun of communism. So they took a picture in front of it. And if you read what that is transcribed, the banner is, and he didn't know about this when he was taking pictures in front of it, it said, ask him about the loan. 
And then at the end of the dinner at the Nixon restaurant, the Nixon burger was like this big thing. My brother's, you know, Richard Nixon, try the Nixon burger. It was this huge, like weird campaign when Nixon was president and everything. But when they, they started serving fortune cookies, now here's the crazy thing. They're all making fun of it because they're going, fortune cookies, this is ridiculous. You know, making fun of communism, that type of thing. They're just having a good laugh about it. Well, everyone started opening up the fortune cookies and the fortune read, ask them about the loan. And that's when it led back to find out that Howard Hughes had donated all this money to Richard Nixon's brother. And it was just so interesting to me. Like, we don't talk about that. These scandals that start happening, you see all these transactions and the mob was just somehow really into politics. I mean, one of my fam favorite photos is Jimmy Hoffa at the end of the table like this. He's itching his eye with his middle finger. It's because Robert Kennedy has his ass in court and he's lighting them up. And, you know, Jimmy Hoffa's not taking it seriously because you got to remember, Jimmy Hoffa might be a a mobster, but he's part of the, he's the leader of the Teamsters Union. And that's where history loses out information because the fact that he's a mobster and a bad guy, you can't support him, but he really revolutionized the Teamsters. He got money for those truckers. He really helped those people out. He really did something. And that's, like I said, in the eyes of society today, oh, you're supporting a mob guy. It's like, well, damn, he was effective at getting, helping out the working class American that wasn't getting shit from the government. So to me, sorry, that was a long rant, but it's interesting information that I found out just by digging into the Kennedy stuff, even though the mob, I don't think they did it. And people will give you shit if you even mention any of this stuff. But if you go into those connections, the power that they had influence into movies, influence into so much relationships with, you know, government officials and figures like that. I mean, they had dirt on Hoover dressed up in a dress, which isn't bad no. now, but <laughs> the only issue I've seen the photo, I can show you that it's pretty interesting. Um, oh, please do. I didn't know his extent. Great. There's a weird, like kind of, you know, everyone always wondered why Hoover never acknowledged the mob. Um, the official kind of thing that came out after uh, these mafia people started meeting and having like these giant, conglomerations and really when john dillinger was killed um is when hoover really had to step in and say hey the mob's real it does exist but i believe it's a state problem that's why i never chose to acknowledge it before but for the longest time he denied even their existence but um two possible theories one mob had control over hoover because they had photos of him in a dress i've seen the photos that's a possible theory i mean there's a there's a weird thing with the FBI. If anybody talked trash on Hoover, the FBI went after you. They went through your mail. They they did a bunch of stuff to really scare you from messing with their director because Hoover was the sale. But uh, Clyde Tolson, his close assistant, um, I mean, when they're older, up in like their 70s, they were going to each other's houses. They were going to dinners together. There's very photos you can find online of them holding hands. You don't know what that is, whether they're close friends or not. Um, but he's the only person throughout the whole FBI that ever got a 100% performance rating from J. Edgar Hoover. So that is a weird, like little, like you can try and connect the dots and Jack Anderson, a reporter at the time was stalking Hoover, digging through his mail and everything. And really, I mean, it's in such detail about how he describes these guys and the person in the dress photo of Hoover is Clyde Tolson beside him. So I don't think they had photo manipulating skills back then, maybe possibly. Um, but then the other theory is, is that Hoover liked to go to the track. And the mob owned the track. So a lot of mob figures admitted to hooking up Hoover um, or hooking Hoover up with race bets. You know, they would rig races for him. So that's a more less conspiracy, less kind of into the homosexuality thing. The only issue with that is, is that Hoover was a hypocrite. He went after gay people. If he was gay himself, he's a piece of shit because in my opinion, I don't care if you're gay, you're just a hypocrite. 
It's um, common, but too that you know, like people that are kind of in the closet, you know, they they act out like that, you know, they they express homophobia. So you're starting to see it. You, you know, you, you've got this, you've got this JFK as the assassinations, the spider at the center of the web, and you've done that much digging that you can just see this elaborate pattern, you know, all the way around him. It's like that with anything to get into. You, it, it all starts making sense. I mean, everything you said to me then, I've I've never really heard before, but I can tell that you know you're convicted on it. You know, you've you've got the You've got all the information. You're in the detail. You live your life in that zone and you start seeing tangents absolutely everywhere. Stuff that your casual observer would just have either no time for or no understanding of. It's like um, if you know historically, you know what COINTELPRO is? No. So COINTELPRO was an FBI operation. And you can – this is – we talked about this off air about Oswald, but um, COINTELPRO is basically the government's way of radicalizing groups that they would consider threats. The FBI considered groups potentially threats, and they would steer them up and make them attack each other, basically. They did it to the Black Panthers, and that's how history teaches them. It was against the Black Panther Party. Well, if you read their official documentation, the list that they have there, it's the KKK, it's the Black Panthers, it's any group that the government saw as a threat to their way of thinking. So it's not necessarily just a racist thing. It's an overall deep state kind of issue, but it's taught as it's against the Black Panthers. Now, there is a lot of evidence to support that they really were only focused on Black Panthers, but they also, I mean, Fair Play for Cuba Committee was communists and Oswald handing out leaflets in an area that is largely right wing where there's no Fair Play for Cuba chapter at all. He was trying to start one in the most hardcore right wing place possible. Is that sheep dipping? I mean, when he gets arrested, he goes to an F- he goes to the headquarters, the, the police headquarters in New Orleans, and he asks to see an FBI agent. What the fuck is that? Like, so there's these like weird things about history that aren't being taught to the full extent because it doesn't fit the political bias of the people who are telling you that information in the first place. And that's like back to my original question: when you're searching through everything and you come across the nuggets, what's a nugget for you? What's one of those little interesting deets? That Thank was a God very I random swung way that of fucking thing around. Wow, you you came back to it. That's a, that's impressive, eh? Mate, you need to get into uh, you know whipping and lassoing thing. You could rope just about anything in with that. Um, uh, look, uh, uh, the first thing that comes to mind because you're just so heavily invested in the JFK assassination. Well, there's a, a conspiracy of assassination at the very uh, heart of the Spartan kingship, and it involved. Um, this is it, it's very misunderstood it's it's on the periphery of the information it's one of those things that you know you can be read a thousand different ways but i i, I love this story um so pausanias the regent pausanias who was who became regent um of the archaea thrown in the lieu of leonidas's um murder at thermopylae so he you know won a phenomenal victory at plataea leading the the allied greek army and afterwards he he took um land forces into persia and started you know fighting battles over there liberating cities and there was a a thought at the time that um, he was looking to become sole king. The other king that was on the throne, uh, the 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 co-throne, the Eurypontid throne, was a bit of a bit of a weak king. And Pausanias was never going to be king. Leonidas' son was was destined for that for that role. So the thought was within Sparta, while this guy is off in Persia, you know, with his own army, he's going to become a self-made man. He's going to return to Sparta with a powerful army and basically abolish the dual kingship and install himself. Um, as king, so they sent off an E4 um, as a as an envoy to bring him back to Sparta. Now, it would stand to reason, you know, if they had him dead to rights, why would he come back back to Greece? Uh, he would have he could have done what so many other Greeks had done throughout history and 
gone to Susa or Persepolis or wherever the Persian king found himself at that time and, and bent the knee and lived out his days in, in luxury. So many ancient Greeks uh, went down that very path if they, for whatever reason, they were ostracized from Greece itself. So he could have done that, but no, as a, as what, what I believe, a loyal Spartan, he, re, he returned to Sparta and to answer the charges. Now, it's a bit ambiguous what happened to him after that, but it seems that he, he left Sparta once again, not far, maybe 30, 40 kilometers north, and they say that he was trying to raise another army in Arcadia. And when this didn't work, he returned to Sparta again. When he came back, it was said that he had completely lost his mind. Um, and the phrase in Greek was that he was taking his wine neat. So the Greek wine was, was very strong. Um, and there was always, whenever you had a, a symposium, a, a party with the wine, the most important job was the person who mixed the wine with water, um, sometimes 10 parts, sometimes 20 parts water, to one part wine because the wine was so incredibly strong. So if you drank your wine neat, uh, as in drank it without water, it was said to send you insane. So that's what they said about Pausanias. He was drinking his wine neat. He was trying to become the sole king. And they ended up uh, walling him. So he, he took sanctuary when he came back to Sparta um, within one of the, the temple's sanctuaries. And the Greeks would never defile the sanctuary by committing murder in there. So they thought what we'll do instead is we'll wall up the door to the um to the temple so that way we don't actually kill him we'll just we'll just starve him to death and therefore we won't have to worry about uh you know the pollution of, of murder in a holy sanctuary but the story goes on to say that even though he'd lost his mind he hadn't lost his powers of persuasion and he managed to convince a halot slave to give him a knife and the next day they found him he'd sliced himself up to a million pieces and, and bled out. And that was the story that they ran with. And I find, I find that story and that, that chain of events to be one very confusing and almost downright disbelievable. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the Spartan powers that be didn't like Pausanias, didn't like the amount of personal prestige that he was um, bringing onto himself through his victory at Plataea. Um, and he wasn't of the Royal line, wasn't, wasn't, you know, destined to inherit. I think that they offed him in much the same way that, you know, the government may be, oft uh, JFK through conspiracy. I think a conspiracy was formed and they, they killed Pausanias and then they wrote it off as you know, he'd lost his mind and, and sliced himself up and killed himself. That's one of the little tidbits that I've always um, been very, very interested and would love to know exactly what happened to Pausanias. Jesus. God's watching. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. God's watching. It's whether you want to blend the details, build up a wall. It doesn't matter. Somebody's watching you down there. God damn. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's rough. All right. Well, look, Steve, you give me enough of your time there, brother man. We're going to end on the murder. Um, <laughs> uh, where can Good people, place to end. Yeah. Where can people find your links, man? Where you'll find any good podcast. You'll also find the humble Spartan history podcast. Um, yeah, just Google Spartan History Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Spartan History or Facebook at Spartan History Podcast. Reach out. Say g'day. I'm going to link all that in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.